So I'm not sure if any of you have ever seen that show before called Undercover Boss. In this show, the head CEO of some big corporation or a manager of a particular branch decides to dress up as a regular employee and go undercover. And the purpose of this show is for the boss, the the head honcho, to try and get a a real and raw view of the the company that he, he owns or that he's running and of the employees. You see, most people will work hard or at least try to look like they're working hard when the boss is around. But what about when the boss isn't around? You know, to, to, what, what about when, when you think it's just some other random employee that you're working with, not actually knowing that he is your superior? And the reason that, that this show has uh, caught so many people or, or is good at, at, I guess, trapping uh, lazy workers or, or domineering managers is because people are often completely unsuspecting. You know, why, why would the boss be in the kitchen flipping burgers and washing dishes? To do such a thing would be beneath the honor of the boss. I mean, the boss is the boss. He doesn't, he doesn't do things like this. He doesn't get his hands dirty. And the reason is because, the reason we think that way is because that's the natural, I think, tendency of people to have this sort of mindset, you know, dividing people into groups, and then you stay within your groups. You know, the employees stay together, and, and, and the, the upper-level management and the, and the bosses stay together. You know, even in our, our friend groups, that's kind of how it works. That's how we think and how we act. You know, most of the people that we're friends with are other people of the same social class or standing. I mean, just take my life as an example. Most, though not all, of my friends are, are middle-class Christian families, exactly what I am. And, and part of that, I think, is similar interests that we have with one another. But part of it is also social, and I think there can even be a moral component to that. And let me explain why I, I say that. See, there can be a sense of self-righteousness that causes someone to reject people who are not like them. Now, few people would actually come out and, and say, but the thought can run through our minds, you know, I'm, I'm too good for Billy. Or, I don't really want to be seen hanging around with, with Sally. You know, my, my time is, is very valuable and very limited, and this guy's really not worth it. You know, that, that can be the natural, I think, sinful tendency of many people. But Christians and the church collectively is meant to be, be a place that goes completely against that type of thinking. As I was writing this sermon, I, I sat there and I tried to think if there was any other institution that has such a, a wide variety of social classes, so many different walks of life, different occupations, different social and cultural backgrounds that the church is supposed to have, And I couldn't think of another institution. I think the reason for that is in part because of what we're going to be talking about today in our passage. See, Jesus wasn't concerned with social and cultural boundaries that prevented the advancement of his kingdom. Jesus didn't care who you were or what your social status was or how much of a sinner you were. He cared about bringing in 
his lost sheep, and he welcomes anyone and everyone who will humble themselves and come to him. And then the challenge then for us from this passage is are we reflecting that same attitude as Jesus? You know, how, how do we interact with those who are not part of our tribe? And what, what should our, our view be regarding our, our involvement with, with sinners and unbelievers? You know, how should we, how, who is it that, that we should not be neglecting anymore or any longer in our efforts to win the world with the gospel? All of these, all of these questions are going to arise out of our passage this morning. So you can turn in your Bibles to Luke chapter 5, verses 27 to 32 is what we're going to be looking at. Luke chapter 5, verses 27 to 32. After this, he went out and he saw a tax collector named Levi sitting at the tax booth. And he said to him, Follow me. And leaving everything, he rose and followed him. And Levi made him a great feast in his house. And there was a large company of tax collectors and others reclining at the table with them. And the Pharisees and their scribes grumbled at the disciples saying, Why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? And Jesus answered them, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. So from this passage, our sermon this morning is going to have three main points that we're going to be looking at. First, Jesus seeks out sinners. Jesus seeks out sinners. Second, Jesus fellowships with sinners. And third, Jesus says, purpose for sinners. And so let's look at our, our, our first point. Jesus seeks out sinners. Verse 27. After this, he went out and he saw a tax, tax collector named Levi sitting at the tax booth, and he said to him, follow me. Now there's a few things that we can get here from Jesus' interaction. First, the person that Jesus is seeking after here is identified as a tax collector. And in Bible times, tax collectors were not, not the greatest people uh, out there. These aren't your, your you know, CRA agents that send you an email when your taxes were off or you underpaid. These, are, these, these tax collectors were really seen as the scum of the earth of that time. But why did people think like this? Why, why were tax collectors seen as so terrible? I'll give you a quick kind of history lesson about tax collectors during the time of Jesus. So at this time... The Jews and the land of Palestine were controlled by the Romans. In fact, the, the Roman Empire had controlled pretty much all of the known world at that time. For the past 100 years, their, their empire grew from Spain and Morocco on the, the west side all the way across Italy, across France, across Greece into modern-day Turkey and down into Egypt. Essentially, if, if any land had touched the Mediterranean Sea... The Romans had conquered and controlled it. And so to maintain such a, a vast empire and to also keep expanding that empire, what did the Romans need? Well, they needed money and they needed lots of it. You see, to, to fund the government, to fund all of these 
officers and legions they have to send into the places that they've conquered and occupied, all of the the legions that are going on and, and breaking into new territory, the infrastructure and the road system, all of it required money. And you know what a great source of money is? Taxes and all of those territories you have just conquered. And so the Romans then instituted this heavy tax system that allowed them to tax their subjects to raise money. And here's where our our tax collectors then come into the story. You see, the Romans, they were were really smart. There's a reason they were the greatest uh, empire at that time. They didn't want to spend their time or their money going out and sending people to collect taxes, dealing with people who didn't pay their taxes. They, They had better things to be doing. And so what they would do, this was called tax farming, they would sell out the right or the opportunity to collect tax to the highest bidder. So people would bid for the opportunity to be the ones to go and collect taxes for the Romans. And so they would actually get people to pay them money to go and collect their their money and taxes for them. Now, what would be the reason that someone would want to go and, and pay money to collect taxes? Well, it's because they could make a fairly good profit off of it, and I'll, and I'll explain why. Let's say the Romans would require a million dollars from the region of, of Galilee in, in taxes. The company that won the bid uh, to collect the taxes would then go and, and collect a million dollars in taxes from these people and then give that million dollars to the Romans. But when there was money that was left over, there was money that was, was extra, the tax collectors could keep all of that money for themselves. And so if they collected $1.5 million, they'd give the million to the Romans and they were sitting on $500,000 extra in taxes. Now there were some taxes that were fixed that they couldn't cheat the system. You know, income tax ranging from 1% to 4%, wouldn't that be nice? Uh, a poll tax, uh, which was simply for being alive, you had to pay the poll tax. And then there was a ground tax requiring 10% on all of your, your grain, uh, your wine, and your oil. But then on top of that, and this is where the, the tax collectors would make their money, there were extra taxes that weren't so fixed. You could tax people for using roads. You could tax people for using a particular harbor. There was even something called a cart tax, where you could tax every single wheel on a cart. And a tax collector could make really good money on these taxes. Essentially, a tax collector could come up to you if you're, if you're journeying on the road. He could ask if you've paid the poll tax. If you didn't, you'd have to pay, or the, the road tax. If you didn't, you have to pay him. He could ask to see proof of your payment of the cart tax for each of your wheels. And then he could open up your cart and he could tax you on pretty much anything in it that he wanted to. And if you couldn't pay, what he'd do is he'd offer you a loan at an extremely high interest rate. And if you refused to pay, he'd have one of his employees, also known as enforcers, try to persuade you through other means to pay up on your taxes. Perhaps a punch to the face will reconvince you on paying those taxes. And then on top of that all, so, so clearly you can see why people didn't like tax collectors, but on top of that all, who were these people collecting taxes for? They were collecting taxes for the Romans. And in doing so, they were enabling the Romans to keep subjugating them. The, the, the tax money they were collecting was the money that was going to the very people that were oppressing them. It's like selling firearms to the country that you're at war with. And so you can see now why, why tax collectors were so hated. 
They were extortionists, embezzlers, cheats, cooperators, and traitors to the Jewish nation. And for that reason, in Jewish law, tax collectors were deemed perpetually unclean. They were unable to to enter the temple to worship. They were unable to offer things to God, and they were excommunicated from the synagogues. And so that's why what Jesus is doing here in our passage, approaching a tax collector and asking him to follow him as one of his disciples, is so radical in creating such a stir. See, Jesus here, he's seeking out really the chief of sinners of the time, the tax collector. And he's, he's, he's very deliberate about it. Now, Jesus, notice that Jesus is the one who seeks out Levi, not the other way around. You know, there's an, an intentionality in what Jesus is doing here. He didn't you know, stumble upon Levi by chance, but he sees him and he approaches him and he says to him, follow me. And then we see Levi's response in verse 28. And leaving everything, he rose and he followed him. See, Levi stops what he is doing. He, he leaves his booth. He leaves that extra bag of money that he's been slowly adding to as, as people are coming. And he gets up and he follows Jesus. And now we already talked about what following Jesus really looks like, what it all entails uh, a few sermons ago when we looked at Peter and John and James leaving everything they had to follow Jesus. But one thing I do want to reiterate here And what is jumping off the text at us is that Jesus requires a change of life. Jesus requires a change of life. He he doesn't want a mere intellectual belief or affirmation of who he is, but he wants you to leave behind the old life, the old self, the the sin and the world of rebellion and, and, and walk this new path of following the Lord. Some people will will say that you don't need to change. Jesus loves you just the way you are. And in a sense, I mean, that is true. And that we don't need to, to change ourselves in order to come to Jesus. But it's also not true, and it's dangerous, because Jesus absolutely requires you to change. He says, deny yourself and take up your cross daily and follow me. Deny yourself. That is changing who you are. That is, that is repenting of, of your natural sinful tendencies. You know, a, a sin might be inherent to who you are as a person. But you need to deny that. You need to deny yourself and follow Jesus, just as, as Matthew, the tax collector, did. And now there's a, there's a few points, I think, of application here uh, for us. First, as I already said, Jesus seeks out Levi, not the other way around. Jesus didn't say, let me make my ministry attractive enough, and then Levi, he's going to come to me. No, he he saw this sinner, and he went to him, and he invited him to follow him. And the same needs to be true with us. The kingdom of God, the, the church of God, is not built by people stumbling in through the door on Sunday morning. You know, we, don't, we don't wait for them to come to us because in reality, very few actually will. See, sinners, unbelievers, they, they need to be sought after. They need to be pursued. They need, they need someone to go out of their way 
and to bring them to the Lord, the fountain of life. And that someone needs to be us, the church. That someone needs to be you in your individual lives. And then a second point of application here is that, is that no one is off limits. No one is off limits. The gospel is for all types of people, and the gospel can, can save all types of people. You know, tax collectors, as I said, were the scum of the earth, but they weren't off limits for Jesus. And so I want you to, to think in your mind, who are the least likely people that you want to bring the gospel to? Who are the least likely people that, that you want to bring the gospel, that you think they don't even deserve the gospel? Those people are not off limits. They weren't off limits for Jesus, and they're not off limits for us. The gospel is, is for them. Jesus seeks out sinners. Now, moving on to our second point. Jesus doesn't stop there with seeking out the sinner. He breaks even more cultural boundaries. Look at verses 29 and 30. And Levi made him a great feast in his house. And there was a large company of tax collectors and others reclining at the table with them. And the Pharisees and their scribes grumbled at his disciples saying, Why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? You see, Jesus doesn't say to Levi, follow me, but then distance himself from the sinner. No, I'm trying to convert you, not be your friend or hang out with you. No, Jesus goes and he has this, this great banquet with Levi. See, Levi has been saved and now it's time to celebrate. He's so overjoyed with his salvation and, and filled with excitement that he invites Jesus over to his house. But we see here that, that this feast is, is not just between Jesus and Levi. It's not just a two-man party. Levi has invited his friends. And we see from the passage that his friends are other tax collectors that are out doing these things. And then it just says others. You know, another crowd. And tax collectors, the other crowd they hang out with usually isn't the greatest crowd. See, they, they belong in that same category of, of filthy sinners as the tax collectors do. And also keep in mind... You know, at, at this point in the story, these other tax collectors probably didn't have the same experience that Levi just had. You know, they haven't dropped everything and followed the Lord Jesus. These people are still tax collecting and continuing on uh, in their sins. And I think that, that that point is important for us because what it means is that Jesus is sitting down here, reclining at the table, extending a hand of fellowship with people who are actively engaged in their sin. These are not repentant followers of Jesus. And this is, this is why the, the Pharisees are so appalled at this and responding in the way they do in verse 30 when they, they grumble and they say, why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? It's because eating and drinking was a big deal at that time. If you were to eat and drink with someone, you were symbolizing shared lives. You know, eating, eating a meal not only had a biological component that you're eating food, but it had a very strong social component to it. And that's why the Pharisees are so upset. Because Jesus here eating with tax collectors shows his friendship and his acceptance of them as people worthy to be given attention and time 
and the gospel. And so the Pharisees are thinking, you know, if Jesus is truly a man of God, if he is truly righteous, he wouldn't be giving these people the time of day, let alone sit down and share a meal with them. According to, Jesus, or according to the Pharisees, Jesus is defiling himself. He's going with the common and the unclean, and he is defiling himself by eating and associating with these people. Righteous people don't associate with sinners. That's how it works. Now, there's a lot of, I think, practical applications that come for us out of this and out of what Jesus is doing here. And the first one has to do with how we as Christians relate to non-Christians today. You know, should, should Christians have fellowship, friendship, association with unbelievers, or should we not? And if we do, to what extent does that look like? Should we be really close friends? Should we just be surface-level friends? Are there, are there any limitations on our relationship with sinners, our, our fellowship with sinners and unbelievers? And I think the answer to this question is, is trickier than we might think. Because on the one hand, we need to be careful with these, with these friendships and these relationships. The Bible warns against spending too much time with those who reject God. Let me read for you a few, a few passages from the book of Proverbs that talk about how we are to, to wisely live in the fear of the Lord. All right, here, here's the first one. One who is righteous is a guide to his neighbor, but the way of the wicked leads them astray. Proverbs 12, verse 26. Whoever walks with the wise becomes wise, but the companion of fools will suffer harm. Proverbs 13, verse 20. Make no friendship with a man given to anger, nor go with a wrathful man. Proverbs 22, verse 24. And last one, my son, fear the Lord and the king, and do not join with those who do otherwise. Proverbs 24, verse 21. And so, so from these verses, it seems here that, that the wise man, woman, or child is one who chooses his or her company thoughtfully, specifically, and with the understanding in mind that those who you surround yourself with are going to affect who you are as a person. And that's on many different levels, morally, spiritually, socially. They're, they're going to influence you and affect you. So that's, that's on the one hand, we see this, this warning given to us in Scripture about uh, being unequally yoked uh, with unbelievers. But on the other hand, we look at the life of Jesus, and we look at passages like we've studied today, and we see that Jesus did not completely distance himself from the world. But he still had fellowship even with unbelievers and sinners. And so then we have these, these two seemingly opposed teachings. You know, stay away from, don't, don't associate with, uh, with the fool, with the one who doesn't fear the Lord and fear, and fear the king. Don't make them a companion. But then we also see on the other side, Jesus' example for us. And so what then is, is the biblical approach for us as Christians in our relationships with non-Christians. Well, here are my, my thoughts on what I think the Bible is advising for us. In general, our friendships with non-believers need to be cautious and intentional. We can have them, but there needs to be wisdom in how we go about that. And for example, if you're a Christian who, 
struggles with sin every time you're, you're hanging out with your non-Christian friends, then you need to be very cautious about that. You need to heed the words that I just read from the Proverbs, and you need to decrease the amount of time that you're spending with these people in those activities for the sake of your own soul. That's what we're warned about in, in the Bible. Whoever walks with the wise become wives, but the companion of fools suffers harm. Suffers harm. You know, I, I remember when I first became a Christian, there were certain friends I, I couldn't be around anymore. Not because I didn't like them, not because I didn't want to see them reach with the gospel, but because I wasn't yet strong enough in my faith to be around them without, without joining them in their sin. And I, and I think this scenario of being cautious is really helpful for our children and teenagers especially. So if you're a child or a teenager, listen up. I'd encourage you, get really good friends while you're young. Get really good friends. Get friends that love the Lord. And as you grow in maturity, then you can branch out into more intentional relationships with non-Christians. And so, first point, be, be cautious in these relationships. And then the second point, be intentional with these relationships. See, Jesus initiates this, this friendship first with Levi and then with other people in the Gospels for a purpose. He's got an intention to reach them with the Gospel. And so then let's say you're, you're growing in maturity as a Christian. The, the sins of your friends, you don't struggle as much with those sins. They don't tempt you in the same degree that they used to when you were younger in the faith. Well, in this case, I think the Bible and Jesus' example gives us a lot more freedom now to seek out these relationships as Jesus did. And in fact, that's what we should be doing as a Christian. If Jesus wasn't too righteous for sinners, then neither are you. He sought them out with the intention of forming these relationships that they might be saved. It's not simply to get more buddies or to join in on their sin with them and then call it outreach, but it's to win them to Christ. I want more non-Christian friends so I can see more people encounter the good news of the gospel. There's an intentional and strategic mission involved in our friendships with sinners, just like Jesus. And so then back to that question, what our fellowship with unbelievers should be like. Well, it depends on your maturity and your current relationships. For me, I, I feel like I'm at a point where I should have more non-Christian friends than I do now. So I can be more faithful and, and, and to, to the command that God has given me to make disciples. I need to be more intentional with reaching out, building relationships, and using those for the purpose of evangelizing. And I, and, and I imagine many of, many of us in, in this church are are in that category as well. And so then you might ask the question, how do I do that? You know, where, where do I start? Well, do what Jesus did. You need to go and you need to seek them out and then have fellowship with them as a stepping stone to sharing with them the truth of the gospel. And you might say, well, pastor, I've got no non-Christian friends and I don't know how to get any. Well, one great thing about non-Christians is that they are humans too. They love to do things that Christians love to do too. They love to join book clubs and play sports and go for walks and play board games, go to the library, live in houses next door to Christians. See, there are many non-Christians all around. We just need to go out and we need to seek them. 
You need to be like Jesus and not wait for them to come to us. And so, so that's my challenge for you if you find yourself in that camp this morning. Start thinking how you can be more intentional in building relationships with non-believers. And then pray about it. And then pursue it. And then as you pursue it, continue to pray for the fruits of that relationship. And if it gets to a point where it's leading you to fall into sin, it might be time to, to step back a little bit. And so that's one, one camp. And yet for others, perhaps your takeaway needs to be that you need to maybe back off of some of these relationships because they're leading you into sin, causing you to stumble and turning you away from the Lord and not towards Him. And so that might be, be, be your point of application this morning. And now before I, I move to the next point, I'll, I'll finish up this little section by quickly saying something to the parents in the room. I think this is an area where we need to be very cautious with our children. You know, there, there's a sense in which it's very noble to say, you know, I want to send my kids out into the world so that they can be a light to the world. You know, they, they may be the only Christians that these other non-Christian children will ever encounter. But I, but I say that I want you to be cautious because, A, your children might not even be Christians yet, and therefore they, they can't be the light of the world if they aren't lit themselves. And then B, children are so malleable, and we know that. They're, they're so influenced by those around them, especially by their peers. And you really, really want Christians to be the ones influencing your children, not unbelievers. And so that's why it's so important for us as, as parents to be discipling our children and involved in their lives and, and knowing who it is they're, they're hanging around with and playing with and learning from and being influenced by. Because one day they're, they're going to be out of your house and all of these influences will be coming at them. And your job as a parent is to pray and work towards building in them a strong faith, a solid worldview, and a wise heart that will help your children Stay grounded so that when these influences come, they can evaluate them according to what they've been taught. And Lord willing, they can be the influencers rather than the influenced. And so when it comes to my children, it's, it's limited and supervised friendship with non-believers. I think that's what's the best way uh, forward for them. And that may mean sacrifices for you as a parent. That may, that may mean a change of schools or a schooling method. That may mean a change of job. That may mean taking your kids out of competitive sports or having to say no to more invitations. But it's worth it. It's worth it for the sake of your children. Jesus had fellowship with sinners. That's our, our second point. Now moving on to the third and final point of the sermon, we see that Jesus is, we, we see here Jesus' purpose for sinners. Look at verses 31 to 32. And Jesus answered them, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. And so Jesus here, he hears the, the Pharisees grumbling and challenging his disciples, and he comes up and he confronts them. See, they have a, a problem with him associating with sinners, and Jesus essentially says, you're going to have to get over it because that's why I came. 
you know, that, that, that I might bring sinners to repentance. And he uses a little analogy to communicate that. And he says, those who are well have no need of a doctor, but those who are sick. See, a doctor doesn't just go around and tend to healthy people and avoid the sick like the plague. No, a, a good doctor is, is there to serve all people, especially the sick who need them the most. And the same is true for salvation. Salvation is for sinners, not for the righteous. It's not for those who, who think they are good, but it's for those who realize that they are not good. You know, Jesus doesn't hate many things, but one thing that Jesus hates, and we see this all throughout the Gospels, is Jesus hates self-righteousness. He hates self-righteousness so much. When, when people think that they have enough righteousness on their own. It reminds me of, of the words of, of Jesus in Revelation to the church in Laodicea. For you say, I am rich, I have prospered, and I need nothing. But I say to you, or not realizing that you are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. See, they had a, an elevated view of self that blinded them to their true status as sinners. And the Pharisees have done the same. And we can often do the same. You see, in, in our story, we often like to say, we are Jesus reaching out to the sinner. But the reality is, we're not. You know, in this story, you are most likely either the tax collector, and God is calling you to him in repentance, or you are the Pharisee, and you're being rebuked here by Jesus for your pride and your self-righteousness. And, this, this, and, and the reason Jesus is rebuking them is because this pride and self-righteousness is so dangerous because it prevents us from coming to the Lord and from being used by the Lord. A self-righteous person thinks that they have no need for a righteous Savior to rescue them, even though the Bible says, no one is righteous, no, not one. A self-righteous person is not going to be continually evaluating themselves and the sin in their lives to be more conformed to the image of Christ. A self-righteous person is, is not going to be humble enough to be used by the Lord. And these are all reasons why Jesus hates self-righteousness and has come not for the righteous, but to call sinners to faith and repentance. And now one final point of application. We see here that Jesus doesn't require you to be healthy before coming to him. Jesus doesn't require you to be healthy before coming to him. That's what the, the Pharisees thought. They thought that this man couldn't come to the, the, the couldn't, this tax collector couldn't come to Jesus because he was unclean, he was unhealthy, he was a sinner, he was rotten. But Jesus shows us here that you don't need to be perfect. You don't need to have it all together to come to Jesus. In fact, it's the opposite. You need to recognize that you are unhealthy, that you are unclean, that you are a sinner, and then you throw yourself upon his glorious grace. We don't come to Jesus because we have it all figured out. We come to him because we don't have it all figured out and we need his help. And as Christians, we need to make sure that we're not then taking this same burden that we're, we're avoiding for ourselves and, and putting it upon other people. Saying, if, if you want to come to Jesus, first thing, you got to clean up yourself. Romans 2 verse 4 says, that it is the kindness of God 
the kindness of God, the mercy of God, the grace of God that leads sinners to repentance. You know, Matthew didn't clean himself up before coming to Jesus. It was after Jesus extended his grace to Matthew by calling him that Matthew, Matthew's life changed, and he followed and obeyed the Lord. And so in conclusion then, we see in this passage that Jesus seeks sinners, that Jesus fellowships with sinners, and that Jesus has a purpose for sinners, that they recognize their sin, they put their faith in Jesus, and they turn to following Him. And our prayer this week and going forward should be that we model the same attitude of Jesus toward the lost. We were once lost, but have been found. We were once sick, but have been healed. And now we get the, the honor and the privilege to point sinners to that great physician who healed us, who found us, who made us new, who made us alive. Let's pray.